My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church, and I'm in get to facilitate the teaching team. And uh, so what'd that feel like when all of a sudden you felt like we may not be able to have a place to meet? Like, did, did anybody, did that sink in a little bit? Did it catch up in your heart? Like, wait, wait a minute, wait, you can't tell us that we can't be here. You can't do that to us. And just to reiterate, that's not true, okay? It was there to to make a point. But there's something about that stability. There's something about that knowing that we have a place to come home to, a place to meet, gather, that's not threatened. It's very important to our understanding of the text today. You see, in nine days, we're going to help welcome two, or at least one. Casey's going to give us an update in in a little bit. But we're, we're committed to take in two families. At least one of them is coming nine days from now, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Former refugees who have lived hand-to-mouth, not knowing what was going to happen next, where they were going to be the next day, the next week, the next year, not knowing could they go home, could they not go home, when would they, where would they go if they couldn't go home. They're going to land at XNA. And we're going to be there to greet them. And we're going to take them to a home that we've furnished with a pantry that we've stocked. And then we're going to help walk them through the process of their new life in the United States. Just a few days after that, two Sundays from now, there's a group of us that are going to start the drive and a a few days later a group will fly out and we're going to build a home for a family in Mexico, a family that's been living in, on dirt floors with tarps, not knowing what would happen to their stuff if they left because they couldn't lock it, not knowing what would happen to their health if it rains because they would be exposed to the elements. And we're going to build them a house. And by getting them up off the floor, off the dirt, we're the Statistics show will cut their disease, their rate of disease, by 50%. By giving them a door to lock, their kids will be able to school, go, will be able to go to school. They won't have to stay back and watch their possessions while the parents go work in the fields or at the factories. And more important even than those things is they'll start to be able to think generationally. It's something we take for granted, y'all. So often we take this ability to think about our kids and our grandkids and their kids. We just take it for granted that we can do that. Most of humanity has not had that luxury. Throughout most of time, people have have lived with the constant threat of today being their last day, this meal being their last meal, not knowing if the crops would come through or if they would fail or if an invading army would come through or their land would be taken. We have this incredible privilege of thinking generationally. And you would think, (laughs) you would think that that would allow us to do a lot of good things. But we can even mess that up. So let's look at this psalm this morning. Let's look at this text this morning 
understanding, one, how it gives us hope, how it gives us the ability to imagine generationally, but also how we can avoid abusing that. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we can just assume that we're going to meet here next Sunday. That we'll be able to gather freely, that we won't have to worry about being shut down or persecuted. God, help us to see what a gift that is, not anything that we've earned, not anything that we're owed, but it's a gift. And help us understand how you're giving us this gift is to inspire and form us into people who in turn give gifts to others. And show us what's at the root of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The text this week is Psalm 128. I'll be reading from the message version. We've been going through the Psalms of Ascent, finishing up the Psalms of Ascent that we finished last summer. These were the Psalms that the people of Israel would sing as they went up to Jerusalem for the festivals. These were songs they would sing to remind themselves. They were songs they would sing to prepare themselves. They were songs that they would sing so that their minds would be ready and their hearts would be ready to receive and to worship and to gather with that. We need that same thing, Grace Church. We need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare ourselves to worship, to experience God. It doesn't come naturally. It's not something that just happens. And it's not something that you get in an academic way. It's a participatory process. When we sing together, there is something that happens that cannot otherwise happen if we were by ourselves. Or if we were just reading it and thinking the words in our head and not mouthing them, not vocalizing them with that. So as we read these Psalms of Ascent, let's keep in mind that these are Psalms to be practiced, not ideas just to be studied with that. And the psalmist says, all you who fear God, how blessed you are, how happily you walk on this smooth, on his smooth straight road. You worked hard and deserve what you have coming. Enjoy the blessing, revel in the goodness your wife will bear, will bear children as a vine bears grapes. Your household lush as a vineyard. The children around your table as fresh and promising as young olive shoots stand in awe of God's yes. Oh, how he blesses the one who fears God. Enjoy the good life in Jerusalem every day of your life and enjoy your grandchildren. Peace be to Israel. Wow. You can feel the excitement. You can feel the energy in these words and these songs as they go. You can feel what it is to ascend up with the expectation of blessing. With the expectation that when you arrive, something good was there. Something good was awaiting you at the end of your journey. Well, last week, we talked about how our text has, uh, has been taken by one small sect of 
people and transformed into a whole theology around have as many children as you can. We talked about the full quiver movement with that. And if that is a small fringe group of people that have done that, with, that, with last week's text, this week's text has been perverted and twisted and has infected all of us. Not just some fringe group, but all of us. And what I mean when I say that is that we have a culture that has been in very large part taken over by a theology that justifies greed, indulgence, privilege, and magical thinking in profoundly destructive ways. It's most commonly known as the prosperity gospel. And this corrupt and debilitating theology has infected almost every part of our church. Now, when I say that, usually we will think of one or two specific individuals. Maybe one who has a large church in Houston. We won't talk about that. But listen, that's, that's the extreme. That's just the extreme. Our culture is permeated by this idea that God owes us things. That God owes us prosperity. That God owes us health. That God owes us blessing with that. And if you don't believe me, just think about the last time something bad happened to someone and their first question is, why me? You only ask that if your assumption is you deserve not to have that happen to you. That you deserve health. That you deserve freedom from those kind of cares. Listen, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody else. I'm pointing it back at myself. This is something that the more I study it, the more I look at it, the more I realize how deeply it runs within me, how much I just assume, make assumptions about what is owed to me, about what I think I deserve, about somehow what I think if, if I just work hard and play by the rules, well then, of course I deserve that. Of course it ought to be given to me because I followed the rules and did these things. And it's easy to think that we deserve something like this, right? This lavish lifestyle of blessing. I mean, come on, that's what he says. That's what the psalm says, right? I mean, it's all about fruitful families and children and grandchildren and great stuff and peace and prosperity. I mean, isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that what somehow this text promises. Or maybe, maybe this is a little over the top. I mean, maybe that's just, maybe really what we say is, John, yeah, yeah, we don't, nobody in here wants, well, maybe a few people want that. I mean, Scott, I don't know what those cars are, but you know, you may want those, but, but we just say, no, I, I just want, you know, I just want to pay my bills. I just want my kids to graduate from school. I just want my family to be healthy. But even that, even that, the assumption of those things indicates our thinking is about us. It's about putting us at the center. 
And listen, without taking undue time on this, we need to recognize that whenever we make the gospel primarily about us, about our needs, our wants, we are reflecting the prosperity gospel. Whenever we set our race or our group, or our church, or our country as better, more blessed, more deserving, we are drinking deep from the well of the prosperity gospel. Whenever we start to justify selfish, self-centered choices as what God wants for us, we can be sure we have traded the true gospel for the prosperity gospel. And at the heart of the prosperity gospel is a profound lack of the proper fear of God. Because if you read this text, it's, it's so easy. Even the way we read it reflects how we think. Because we read it, we automatically go to that, oh, fruitful like grapes. Oh, children like olive shoots. Oh, sitting around the table, right? That's where we go. We skip over that you who fear the Lord. That starts. We skip over the bottom. Those who fear the Lord are blessed. And so just as Alex introduced some church words, hallelujah and amen, I mean, fear the Lord, and that's a churchy word. That's a churchy idea. That's a churchy concept. What, what does that mean in practice? I don't know what it, what, when it was, but it was a few years back when I first saw this bumper sticker. Anybody seen these? It's like after the first time I saw it, then I started seeing them in all different places. And it was, it was kind of scary with that. But is, is that what fear of the Lord means? Like, beware of God. He's out to get you. Right? He's like a malevolent Santa Claus. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad, zap, <laughs> right? <clears throat> I mean, is that what this means? Or is there something else? You know, I, I've heard it taught a thousand different ways. And I'm, I'm going to frustrate you a little bit maybe here. Because I'm not going to give you an exact definition. Look, I don't know. I don't know. Scripture is full of this idea. I can't compress it into a few succinct words. But I, what I think I can do is spur our imagination to contemplate this and to let the idea of it expose what it's not. And the first thing that I want to share with you about what I think we need to think about when we think about fear of the Lord is it means... We're not anonymous. See, I, you know, we struggled as we, as we studied this week where it says, hey, you're going to get what you deserve. That line in the text where it says, you know, enjoy it, you're going to get what you deserve because we understand we really don't deserve anything. Everything that we have is a gift. Everything that I've been given is a gift. Even when I've worked hard, the fact that I get to enjoy what I've worked hard for is a gift. Most of the world works hard. Few people get to enjoy the benefit of that hard work. But there is this element of we cannot remain anonymous and fear the Lord. 
each and all of us, every one of us, is known by God. We are seen by God. And what that means is as we work, as we do these things, we're being seen. They're not, it's not just either going through the motions. It's not futile. It's not fruitless as well as not earning, but we are seen by God. And when we, we understand that, that God sees us and cares for us, and that what we do matters, it not only keeps us from getting sucked into the prosperity gospel, but it also saves us from that nihilistic apathy, that idea that it just doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter, that it's all meaningless, it's all striving after the wind, it's all just fruitless. Why should I be faithful? Why should I give effort into this? Why should I do this? It just doesn't matter what I do. When we understand that God knows us, that God sees us, that our actions have consequences and results, it saves us from both ends of the spectrum. From the prosperity gospel of thinking, hey, it's just all about me. It's all about what I want. And also from the idea of apathy, of who cares? Who cares what I do? And listen, humans have been vacillating between those two poles since we left the garden. We have been bouncing back and forth. If you're not on one side, you're probably on the other. And we've talked a lot about this in kind of the try harder, give up cycle as well. It's reflected in that. You know, we think, man, I'm going I'm I'm to make it happen this time. It's all going to come together. And that works for a while. And then it doesn't. And then you're like, well, who cares? Just give up. And that works. For a while. And then it doesn't. And the answer to this, the answer to this, is to know that we are seen by God and that what we do matters. It is necessary. Insufficient, yes, but necessary in knowing God. And putting the fear of God, the knowledge that God sees and knows us, at the center of our experience, starts to dispel those extremes. It starts to bring balance and perspective, wisdom and discernment to those things. Now, that's all nice and dandy, but the fear of the Lord is more than a theological construct to be understood. It's a core experience to be had. This is something that we need to experience, not just know, but no. And is that possible? I mean, what does that feel like? What is it like? Well, there are a thousand different ways that this can be experienced by a thousand different people. I can't give you any one solid, yeah, this is it. You know the fear of the Lord because you've experienced this. I don't, I don't know that other than I know it has to be done. Do not settle for anything less. 
Do not settle for God being a concept. Do not settle for the experience of God to be secondhand to you. Don't let somebody else's faith substitute for your own experience with God. To fear the Lord is to desire that. It's to want that. It's to long for that. It's to look for that. It's to ask for that. It's to pray for that. Say, God, I I need that experience of you. I need you not so you can control God, not so that you can dictate, not that you can get what you want, but that you can know that. It's the next logical step from realizing, hey, I'm not anonymous. I'm not just this being on this planet in this void not known by God. Really, if we're not known by God, we can't know ourselves. We can't know other people. They can't know us. When we realize, okay, God can know us, then we say, okay, well, then how is that, God? How do you know me? Let me experience that. Let me experience your knowing me. Let me know that I am seen. Let me know that I am loved. And don't stop short. Don't let anything else, don't let any addiction or distraction or entertainment take the place of that. But long for it and seek after it. The last thing that I would offer this morning that relates us to this, that helps us center our lives around the fear of the Lord, that protects us, that clarifies things for us, is this idea of what we talked about at the start, is to understand and to look forward to the future. eat and drink for tomorrow we die it's not just a slogan of one particular era or epoch but that is a bit of the default of humanity is to give ourselves over to the moment to the exception of everything else now listen I'll t- I'll talk to you all day long about being present because I believe we need to be I believe we need to be present to where we are present to the people around us I believe we need to be focused on that But when we do it to the exclusion of everything else, the disregard of the future, the ignorance of the past, we become unmoored. The fear of the Lord is is evidenced in a profound hope about the future. It seems harder and harder to do that, doesn't it? I mean, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I just read too much in the news. Maybe I'm just paying too much attention to getting old. But my temptation is to lose hope about the future. Whether it's politics or economy or environment, people or my own self, I'm tempted to lose hope. And I think the fear of the Lord combats that. Because as we let go of the things we deserve, we also let go of that control. We realize 
that God is going to do what God said he is going to do. That the one who created all this, the one who has purposed that, the one who knows us, the one who is desiring that experience more than we'll ever desire it, that's the, thing, that's the thing that keeps us pushing for that experience is knowing that God wants that for us more than we ever could for ourselves. Also holds the future. Holds the future. And when we know that, when we're convinced of that, when we start to set our mind on that, when we start to look to a future with not denying the obstacles and challenges that face us, but with hope in the future. Looking forward, knowing that we are not laboring in vain. We're not providing our efforts that are going to be fruitless. But that we do this together as a community that is motivated by hope in the one who holds the future. Then I believe we can know the fear of the Lord. I believe that reflects the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> the theologian G.K. Chesterton observed, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. Let me say that again. We fear men. Now put, substitute maybe men. Do you fear the future so much because you fear God so little? Do you fear failure so much because you fear God so little? Do you fear shame and scorn so much? Do you fear death so much? Because that's kind of the last thing. What do we fear more than we fear God? Being found out? To being shamed? Is it failing? Is it pain? What do we fear more than we fear God? Whenever we make ourselves the center, we're center. Whenever we make ourselves the center, we're making idols. We're practicing and proclaiming a false gospel. And we are denying the very Jesus we say we love and follow. Now, we're going to do a couple things here this morning that are going to try to move this out of just a nice sermon where you sat attentively and politely and listened to me talking in the microphone and maybe start the ball rolling on the experience side. If you were here a few weeks ago when Andrew led the service and, and Abby and Teresa and everyone introduced the, the Psalms of Ascent, we did this activity where we made crowns. We wrote things on the crowns. What do you want to give to God? What do you want to adore God with? You know, we sing songs about God. We adore you. We love you. We give you our things. We sing songs about it, but we have to actually do that, you know? <laughs> we're not play acting. It's not, a, it's not a practice thing. Like, like, we need to follow through with doing that. And so as you go take communion, before you come up here, back in the back on that table, there are these. 
And I want you to take one, maybe take two. Write on it, what do you want to adore God with? Maybe it's just your name. Maybe you need to put your name on this. Your idol. And lay that symbolically at the throne of God. Maybe, it's some, maybe it is that thing that you fear more. Maybe it's that thing that you fear more than you fear God. And you need to say, I put that down. I will not. I will no longer fear that more than I will fear God. Maybe it's something that's a good thing in your life. It's not, it's not something you fear, but it's a good thing. But you know it's, it's taking undue presence. It's taking undue place in your life. You're more concerned about that good thing, maintaining that good thing, holding on to that good thing, than you are about really experiencing God totally being God in your life. Maybe you need to write that on this and put it down. But whatever it is, as you go, grab one, do that as we worship, and then as you come up before you take communion, lay that down. That's one thing we're going to do. Now the next thing, I'm going to invite Casey to come up and to give us an idea of what is happening with the family. Listen, this is going to be the fast, this is going to be the shortest runway, right, that Canopy's ever had? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, like they, they gave us a time frame anywhere from July to October. We're getting them the first of July, like, like at the very shortest runway. You want to grab yeah. that mic and give us a quick update on what we need to do to be ready for this. Hey, Grace Church, can you hear me? Um, we've been waiting several months for our canopy family to come. These are refugees. Uh, this particular family uh, collectively is a group of 18 people that have been in the camp since 2009. The first family that's coming in, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, is the Mwenda family. There's eight of them. There's a, a husband and a, a wife. There's two 19-year-old boys, a 15-year-old boy, uh, and I think two 15-year-old girls in this group. Uh, soon thereafter, and we don't know when, there's going to be another group of six people coming in, and then another church is going to be handling another group of four. They're all together, though. Here's the thing. With such short notice, we're in need of some really specific things for these families. The hardest thing for us to find are the five twin mattresses, bed frames, uh, box springs, all of that. We also need two double mattresses. And then one queen mattress. Box springs, frames, everything. Uh, this is the only thing that we need that has to be new. Uh, there are other things such as four dressers that we need, lamps, nightstands, all kinds of things. When you go to the back of the church to pick up the crowns that John uh, spoke of earlier, there are two sheets, one for the first family and one for the second family. If you can look on those sheets and give us whatever you can to help out. It would be greatly appreciated. This is a real chance for us to practically show and provide faith, hope, and love. This is, this is it, you guys. We're, we're, we're on now. So we could really use your help, and this is the way for us to just to really help this family get started here in America. Uh, if you have any questions or you want to give money or anything 
afterwards, feel free to reach out to me or Teresa Cornett, and we'll direct you in the right uh, path or direction or whatever. Anyway, if we could, we could use your help. Thank you. Thanks, Casey. Thanks so much. Um, I think it's appropriate to give that announcement here, not as just an announcement, but as an invitation for us to come to this table. Oh, look at, look at what Jesus has provided for us. We're all refugees from grace, grace of God. We've all been invited and provided for through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus sets that table for us every Sunday. Every Sunday, Jesus shows up and says, Welcome. Come into my family. Come into my house. I will provide everything you need, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because it's a gift given. And as you go and as you write that thing and as you, as you demonstrate your act of worship and then you come and you receive that goodness of God, that welcome and that provision, also know that we're to walk out and provide that to others to tangibly demonstrate that this service on Sunday is more than a bunch of talk. But it is a demonstration that life and hope is yet alive in the world. Can we do that, Grace Church? Can we do that this morning, this week, these next days? Thanks for being here.